Congregation, this morning, if you would open your Bibles and turn to Matthew 28. Our Scripture reading will be verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 28. In your pew Bible, you can find that section on page 1150. After we read from the Word of God, we'll then turn to the Belgic Confession uh, to Article 9. And you can find that in your Forms and Prayers book in the pew rack on page 160. We continue to follow the Belgic Confession as it summarizes the Word of God on the basic core essential doctrines or truths that God has revealed in His Word. We're dealing more specifically with the truth or the reality of the Trinity. So we read from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 9 in the Belgian Confession on page 160 in your Forms and Prayers book. It's titled, The Scriptural Witness on the Trinity. And it states as follows, All these things we know from the testimonies of Holy Scripture as well as from the effects of the persons, especially from those we feel within ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures, which teach us to believe in this Holy Trinity, are written in many places of the Old Testament, which need not be enumerated, but only chosen with discretion. In the book of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Indeed, male and female, he created them. Behold, man has become like one of us. It appears from this, that there is a plurality of persons within the deity when he says, let us make man in our image. And afterwards, he indicates the unity when he says, God created. It is true that he does not say here how many persons there are, but what is somewhat obscure to us in the Old Testament is very clear in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in the Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard saying, this is my dear Son, The sun was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. So in the baptism of all believers, this form was prescribed by Christ. Baptize all people in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel according to Luke, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the mother of our Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, that Holy One to be born of you shall be called the Son of God. And in another place it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. In all these passages, we are fully taught that there are three persons in the one and only divine essence. And although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, we nevertheless believe it now uh, through the Word, waiting to know and enjoy it fully in heaven. 
Furthermore, we must note the particular works and activities of these three persons in relation to us. The Father is called our Creator by reason of His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His living in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained in the true church from the time of the apostles until the present against Jews, Muslims, and certain false Christians and heretics, such as Marcion, Manny, Praxius, Sibelius, Paul of Samosata, Arius, and others like them, who are rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We said last Sunday morning, and we repeated again this Sunday morning, that the doctrine or the, the truth, the reality that there is one only God. But in this one only God, there are three real distinct persons who are co-equal, co-essential, and co-eternal, that this truth, this reality, is the most basic and the most distinctive truth of the Christian faith. Uh, We might say that this truth is an essential truth. In order for a person to be saved, in order for a person to be reconciled to God, in order for a person, whether young or old, male or female, in order for a person to live in harmony with the one true God, in fellowship and in communion with the one true God, there must be a maturing knowledge that there is one only God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But but what stands before us this morning and what weighs upon uh, the pastor heart is you and I must not only know this truth, but we also must know why we believe in this truth. Now that's true for all of us, but especially for uh, the young people of this congregation. And so my earnest desire and burden this morning is that the young adults and the young children of this congregation might begin to understand and to know more and more not only the doctrine of the Trinity, but also why it is that we as a Christian church believe these things. So that as those young people go out and as they are confronted with a world that is in hostility against the Christian faith, and as they encounter various voices, that they might know without any shadow of a doubt that based on the God who has revealed Himself within His most holy Word, That there is one only God, but that that one only God is a triune God. That there is a Father, that there is a Son, and that there is a Holy Spirit. And just a note by way of passing introduction also to us as a congregation. Applies, of course, to the pastor and to the elders and to the office bearers and to the parents, to the grandparents, and to all who are involved in any type of education within this congregation, whether it be catechism or Sunday school, young adults, the various Bible studies, we must labor. We must work diligently so that the next generation of the Christian faith not only understands the Christian faith, but also understands why it is that we believe these things. 
And so we turn our attention this morning to this theme, our belief concerning the revelation of the Trinity. Well, notice, first of all, the need for the revelation. And then secondly, the content of the revelation. And then thirdly, the distortion of the revelation. So we have our belief concerning the revelation of the Trinity, the need, the content, and the distortion. First of all, then we turn our attention to the need for this revelation of the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. The need explained and then the need met. There is a need for a clear revelation of the Trinity. What do we mean by that? We need God to show us who He is. You and I, no matter how gifted academically, no matter how gifted intellectually, you can be a 4.0 student at the greatest of the educational academies within our land. Uh, You can score the highest on an IQ test. You may have unparalleled brilliance in your mental cognitive abilities. But you and I, by ourselves, can never ascend into heaven and peer into the divine being and come to any type of reliable knowledge of who He is. Rather, God must show us who He is. And you can read Exodus 18, 19, and 20 as God comes to Moses and through Moses to the covenant people of Israel. And you are reminded there that God met with Moses on Mount Sinai. But you will remember perhaps that the people of Israel did not climb up the mountain. They did not climb up to the heavens. They did not ascend up and come to a knowledge of God by their own efforts, but rather God came down. And God revealed Himself. God told Israel who He was. And that's why there is this need, especially in relationship to the Trinity, because the Trinity, uh, to quote one ancient forefather, is a doctrine that surpasses human understanding. Now, it is not contrary to human understanding, but rather it is above human understanding. And this presents uh, the great dilemma. Because if we have any type of inclination within our heart to follow after the wisdom of this age, uh, to follow after the so-called experts of our age, We will never be led to a true knowledge of who God is. And that's why we so emphatically insist upon our faith and our life has to be built upon the Word of God and upon the Word of God alone. Because apart from the Word of God, and we say this lovingly, but we say this also boldly, apart from the Word of God, you and I will never understand the one true God. And we will never enjoy the fellowship and the communion that there is with the one true God. And that's why the Scriptures so emphatically call us to follow after the Word of God, that they might be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Whether it be rationalism, mysticism, some type of scientific imperialism, they will never be able to afford us a comforting knowledge of the triune God. But even more than that, the need for the revelation of the Trinity is emphatically heightened by our need to understand who the mediator is, who the Christ is. And you can think of that famous question that Jesus presented to the disciples through Peter. Jesus asked in Matthew 16, Who do men say that I am? 
And that's still a pressing question for every single member of the human race. Who do people say that Jesus Christ is? Well, a variety of answers are offered today just as they were in the days of Jesus Christ. So, some people say, well, Jesus, you know, He's a, he's a wise sage, so to speak. He offers us some proverbial truths of how to live our life. Is that who Jesus is? Others say, well, He was some type of religious leader who started some type of following uh, perhaps others say uh, he was a, uh, an individual who showed us uh, a concern for the oppressed within society. All of these things are perhaps true at some level. But then Jesus in Matthew 16 turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that continues to confront every single one of us. And so I would present that question to you as an individual as you hear these words this morning. Who do you believe Jesus is? You can't escape that question. You can't escape Jesus Christ. You can't escape a confrontation with His claims that He is the eternal Son of God. That He is the one only mediator. So right now this morning, who do you say Jesus Christ is? In order to answer that question correctly, we need the revelation of the Trinity so that we might say by the Spirit's illuminating work, into the revelation of the Word of God, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, the one and only Savior. In order to make that claim, in order to have that understanding, there must be the revelation of the triune God within His Word, as well as the acceptance of that revelation by the internal work of the Holy Spirit. And so the need is explained by the identity of Christ in light of the mystery of the Trinity, but the need is met by a uniform testimony. What do we mean by uniform testimony? The true church has always been clear from her very inception in the days of the apostles down to our present day that there is a triune God. And so we have these ecumenical creeds uh, that the Belgian Confession references. The Apostles' Creed is clearly Trinitarian, we say, in its framework. And so you can think, and you ought to think, every Sunday night as we recite the Apostles' Creed, it begins, I believe in God. One God. Not I believe in gods. Pluralism is ruled out when it comes to our understanding of God. I believe in God. This one God. This one divine essence. But in this one God, I believe the Father. I believe the Son. I believe the Holy Spirit. And the Nicene Creed does not contradict the Apostles' Creed, but rather elaborates a bit more specifically in the area of who Jesus Christ is. And the Athanasian Creed begins to broaden that understanding out even further. But all three of these ecumenical creeds that were formed and adopted by the early church are clear and are uniform in their testimony. And that's because the Scriptures itself is clear. Now we understand, at least hopefully we understand, that as the Bible historically progresses from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, as we have it in canonical order, there is a a, a greater and greater clarity to that which is revealed, but there is never any contradiction. Numerous passages were referred to by the author in the Belgic Confession in Article 9, but you can just take what is revealed so clearly in Genesis chapter 1. There, there is a clear revelation that God is one in His essence. And so there is the singular, and you can think of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I understand that that's not a full, clear revelation of the Trinity, but there is the revelation that there is one divine essence. 
Then God said. God is in the singular. And notice also, let us make man in our image. Image is in the singular. There's not the reference, let us make man in our images. So there is the revelation of one single divine nature. But within that divine nature, Genesis 1 verse 26 reveals that there is a plurality of persons. Let us. There is this inter-Trinitarian conversation prior to the creation of mankind. And now we've chosen to read from a text in Matthew 28 uh, that reveals the Trinity with even greater clarity. And this is very, very important. The baptismal formula as given by the Lord Jesus Christ so that when a covenantal child or when a convert in their adulthood receives the waters of holy baptism, the officiating minister should, ought not, ever say, I baptize you in the names, plural, but it's always in the singular. I baptize you in the name. But then there is the three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there is this uniform testimony of the one divine essence, but the three distinct persons. And as we hear and as we receive this uniform testimony congregation, let us bind our hearts to that which God has revealed and let us understand God as He truly is. Not coming up with our own imaginations of what we think He is like or what we would want Him to be like, but rather as He truly is. And so there is this need for the revelation Having considered that, we turn our attention then to the content of the revelation. And again, here we're not going to be exhaustive. Uh, You could spend a month of Sundays dealing with the truth of the Trinity. We're just covering this morning the basics of the content concerning the persons and then also concerning the works. Uh, But notice in the Belgic Confession, the four different areas or times of the redemptive work that God has revealed in Scripture that refer to the Trinity. You have creation, as it's recorded clearly in Genesis 1, 2, and also 3. At creation, there is already, although somewhat veiled, there is already the revelation of the Trinity. And then at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now there are other verses and passages along the way, most notably within the prophecy of Isaiah, and also within the Psalms, but the next major step, you might say, of the further revelation of the truth of the Trinity is found at the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, As the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the incarnation, then there is the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, there is uh, the revelation of that benediction or that good word. Uh, that God has for us, that we hear every single time we gather together for holy exercises of worship. And what is revealed to us is, in some ways, repeated from what we said yesterday, last Sunday morning, concerning the persons, there have always been, and there will always be, three distinct persons. We say distinct because the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Various men in olden times and in contemporary times have made this heretical mistake of denying the distinct persons. Uh, Most notably is the T 
teaching of what we call modalism. Modalism says, well, there's only one God. He just has three different ways in which He relates to us. Sometimes He relates to us as a Father. Sometimes He relates to us as the Son. Sometimes He relates to us as the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is a heretical teaching that denies the distinctiveness of the individual persons. Now, there is a danger concerning the persons that we might say, well, all of this seems to be some theological abstract wranglings. What is the real profit? of understanding that there are three distinct persons. Well, we would say, first of all, the real profit of understanding the distinctiveness of persons is that we might have a right knowledge of God. And again, that ought to be something that presses upon us. We we ought to have a desire to know God, but also especially to know God as He truly is. But when you look back at the what we call the Trinitarian controversies in the early days of the apostolic church and the post-apostolic church, What motivated this desire to understand properly the three distinct persons was the recognition that our very salvation is bound up in an understanding that there is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. Perhaps some of you will remember uh, from catechism class a certain person known as Athanasius, a church father, uh, a minister and a theologian in the early church. Uh, In the 4th century, he did great battle against another teacher in the church, Arius. Uh, Arius had a wrong understanding of the Trinity. Athanasius had a biblical understanding of the Trinity. And it's often been said that Athanasius stood against the world. Uh, He stood uh, in many ways in the gap, protecting a biblical understanding of the Trinity. He was motivated to stand against the world because he understood that we need to have the distinct person of the Son of God Jesus Christ as our Savior. So he was motivated to engage in this intense theological battle because he understood we need a Savior. And that that Savior must be a distinct person with both a divine nature and also in the fullness of time a human nature because we need a distinct person on the cross, on the atoning substitutionary cross. And so you hopefully can begin to understand and to continue to understand that this whole idea of the Trinity is not just some type of abstract, deep theological muddy waters, but it deals with who our Savior is. We need the eternal Son of God as our mediator. And so when that question comes to us, that Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Hopefully our answer is, I believe in the very depths of my soul that you are the eternal Son of God, in part because I recognize that that's who I need on the cross as a substitutionary Savior. I need someone who bears my real human nature but in a sinless form, but also the eternal Son of God so that you might satisfy all of the requirements of God. And I hope that we understand if we ever lose an emphasis upon the divinity of Jesus Christ, then we lose salvation. So rather than the Trinity just being some abstract, far-off, deep theological quibblings, this is the very essence of our salvation. That we believe there are three distinct persons, but one divine essence. And that then brings us into the content concerning the works. We must be clear on what God's work is. 
And there is, of course, as we said last week, this understanding, and it might oversimplify things somewhat, that the Father thought redemption in the eternal decree. The eternal decree of predestination. Especially that aspect of predestination of election. You and I must understand, and when we do understand, what the Father has done from all of eternity in our redemption, then we will worship the Father. But also the Son, and that the Son bought or purchased or accomplished the work that was necessary for our salvation and for our redemption. And as we not only understand the work that the Father has done in glorifying Himself through His Son and through the salvation of His people, but also as we understand what the Son has done, the same will produce within us this desire to glorify the Son and to honor the Son and to worship the Son. And also the Holy Spirit, uh, as He works out salvation, as He wrought salvation, what do we mean by that? The Holy Spirit is the one who enters into our spiritually dead souls and through the work that we know as the new birth or regeneration produces faith whereby we become those who receive the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're trying to portray before us is that that we ought to be, we must be, those who love each person of the Trinity because we understand something of the glory of each person of the Trinity, especially as that glory is revealed in the work of salvation or the work of redemption. You might say it this way, which person of the Trinity could you do without? And the answer is none. We need the Father. We need the Son. And we need the Holy Spirit. And that's why our Belgian Confession has this phrase where it talks about in the very opening, we know from the testimonies of Scripture as well as from the effects of the persons that we feel within ourselves. So the truth of the Trinity is revealed in the Word of God, but it is affirmed by the experience within our soul of the work of these three persons. Now, we always need to be careful that we don't flip that. We don't say, well, I experienced this in my heart, so it must be true. We take what we experience within our heart and we evaluate it according to the revelation that we have within the Word of God. But in the Word of God, we have a clear revelation of the Father decreeing election from all of eternity. And within my heart, I understand, if I properly know myself, that it's not I myself who has made myself different than my fellow man. You see, the, the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrine of unconditional election, if a person rightly knows himself or herself, you will see within the Word of God, you can think of Ephesians 1, the clear revelation of an unconditional election. But you also, if you rightly know yourself, you know that that doctrine is true. Because you know that there's nothing in yourself that motivated the Father to set His redemptive affection upon you. And you also know, if you rightly know yourself, the reality of irresistible grace. You know that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, broke into your heart at some stage, perhaps in your infancy even. You know that the Holy Spirit is the one who made a difference. So that you 
laid hold of the Gospel promise. That you continue to lay hold of the Gospel promise. And so these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work the work of redemption. But notice that in our third point, there's also some distortion on this. And we're not going to go into all of the various heresies that are listed within our Belgic Confession. We can group them into two. There are two examples of the distortion. The first is that of a dualism. Uh, the second, that of a Unitarianism. Uh, a dualism, this has been around as long as there have been heretics, which is from the very beginning after the fall. But a dualism is this understanding that there is a good God and there is an evil God. Now maybe these are personal gods. Maybe these are impersonal powers. Uh, in the in the mindset uh, of the heretical or the false teaching, but dualism is absolutely ruled out with a biblical understanding of the Trinity because we believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are Almighty. So there is this heretical teaching of a dualism, but that needs to be stricken from our minds, and in a practical sort of way. Uh, there is this temptation to buy the lie of dualism when we think that there is some eternal evil principle or power that is battling against our Heavenly Father. And we are prone sometimes to think, well, we're not sure who's winning or who will win. And you'll find some type of expressions of this way when, when Christians talk, well, I, I just don't know how we can live in the world in the current state that it is in. I, I don't know how we can go forward. And, and you hear well-meaning people, and I share the concern, uh, but it's not a biblically grounded concern. When we say, well, I'm not sure how my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, how they will do. That's why we come together every Sunday night as a Christian church and we profess that we believe in God the Father Almighty. Almighty. Dualism is rejected by the Christian faith, but also uh, a form of utility. Unitarianism, which denies the distinct persons. And here you can think of Judaism, you can think of the uh, Islamic faith. Uh, Now, especially to the young people of this congregation, you're living in a culture and in a world that is blatantly and aggressively pluralistic. What do I mean by that? You're going to be confronted with individuals who say, well, all faiths are equally valid. And you are going to be confronted as I also am going to be confronted with charges of hate speech if we say, you know what? The Islamic conception of God is a lie. The Judaistic conception of God is a lie. Now our hearts break for those who are caught underneath that lie. But their conception of God is not a biblical, not a right understanding of who God is. And you can think of uh, the Jehovah's Witness as he or she comes to you and confronts you, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, so they do not rightly understand who Jesus Christ is. And our heart breaks for those who are caught underneath the bondage of these lies. But against these distortions, we need to have a proper understanding of who the one only true God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because there is a danger underneath this distortion. And the danger of these distortions regards salvation. That's why our early ecumenical creeds state, anyone then who desires to be saved should think in this way about the Trinity. In order for there to be salvation, 
there must be the maturing understanding that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, but yet there are not three gods, one only God. In order for someone to have salvation, in order for someone to be reconciled with the Father, there must be an understanding of the work of the divine Son of God and also the experience of the work of the divine Holy Spirit. And this demands our instruction and it demands our faith. And with that, we conclude, first of all, a word of exhortation concerning our instruction. As a congregation, especially in relationship to the next generation of this church and of the church more broadly speaking, we must double down on our efforts to hand the baton of faith to the next generation. On one hand, you might say, well, these are deep, mysterious truths in that they are, but they are also simple, basic Christian truths. And so we must, with fervent prayer, but also with an earnestness and an eagerness and a zeal, communicate to our young people and communicate to our covenantal children, this is the God whom we serve. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And the nations must be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so can we within our hearts make a vow amongst ourselves that we will not be content offering our children and our young people little trifles of entertainment as we gather together as a congregation, but that we will set before them in a winsome way the deep and profound but also the essential truths so that our children and our young people will come to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because this is essential for their salvation as well as for their well-being. And that's what distresses the hearts of faithful ministers and faithful elders and faithful office bearers as well as faithful grandparents and parents when we see so many areas of the Christian church mesmerized by mere triflings. Well, let's offer them the children a, a, a nice little backwarming message and send them out of the sanctuary so they can color and play puzzles and other types of games. No, let's gather them on our knees and on our laps and next to us in our pews. Let's gather them on the Sunday school and the catechism classroom chairs. And let's say to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because this is where their faith needs to be directed. This is where our faith needs to be directed. Our faith must be directed to the one true God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are all together to be glorified and worshipped both now and for all of eternity, world without end. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we do glorify Your name because You are a wonderful God. We do confess that the essence of Your being is incomprehensible to us. And yet You have truly revealed Yourself as a triune God within the pages of Holy Scripture. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would grant us the ability to understand, not exhaustively, but nevertheless truly, who You are. Not only for today, but also for the church of tomorrow. 
and for the church of all ages, may this truth, the, the truth of the triune God, never be lost, never be distorted, never be corrupted, but always be appreciated. And Father, we ask that even as these words have been spoken, that they might have produced faith within the hearts of children and of young people, as well as adults and even elderly saints, that we might live and die with the profession that we believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.